Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor Tristan Free, and you're listening to part two of our mini-series on diagnostics and detection, supported by TCAN. Joining me today is Steve Patterson, Professor of Genetics at the University of Liverpool. Hi Steve, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi Tristan, uh, thanks for having us. And I will also be joined later on in the podcast by Josh Quick, UKRI-funded Future Leaders Fellow at the Institute of Microbiology at the University of Birmingham. Hi Josh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. In this episode, I'll be exploring the techniques involved in biosurveillance for COVID-19. The methods that we're using at the moment are essentially PCR applications. People generate uh, illuminate genomes, nanopore genomes. People use amplicon sequencing, um, bait capture sequencing. Some exciting new technologies that have been developed as a result of the pandemic. So one of the things I'm excited about at the moment is a, a new technique called RC-PCR, so reverse complement PCR. And the role of the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium in this effort. Stick around to discover the act of serendipity that helped the UK identify the novel variant B117. And that was very lucky, right? Because you've got a 30,000 base genome and you've got a 20 base pair primer that happens to fall right on top of the deletion that gives you an insight as to whether you've got the variant or not. But first off, Steve, please can you tell us a little bit about your position at the University of Liverpool and your work before the pandemic? Yeah, so I've been at uh, Liverpool for at least 15 years now. So I'm head of what's called the Environmental Omics Facility, which is funded by the Natural Environmental Research Council. Most of what we do, we sort of tackle uh, things like using omics techniques, genomics, etc. to tackle things like biodiversity, climate change. Uh, and there was always a little bit of that was about detecting pathogens in the environment. Obviously, that last bit, kind of took off in a big way come March last year. And so that kind of sort of leads me to uh, where we are now. And so can you briefly tell us about um, the COVID-19 Genomics Consortium? Yeah, so it was set up uh, right at the start of the outbreak uh, with the idea that we really needed to monitor uh, the variants that were circulating within the community. At that time, we didn't really know how quickly COVID would evolve. We wanted to be able to use those kind of genome sequencing methods in order to detect outbreaks to say whether uh, one infection arose from uh, another person or whether you had two separate independent introductions to an area, those kinds of questions. And then actually quite a bit of foresight in being able to say, okay, um, you know, in the future, if we get uh, vaccinations, are we going to see uh, the virus start to evolve uh, against that? That uh, initial investment right at the start has uh, really paid off at UK in this. Okay. And, and going on to your involvement in the, in the COG UK, as it's sort of abbreviated to um, group, you're working on the, the wastewater working group. How, how did you come to be um, one of the leads on that on that group? Yeah, so I mean, most of COG is um, looking at clinical samples. Um, so, you know, wastewater is, you know, is using an alternative approach to uh, monitor variants uh, in sewage systems. And so it kind of really comes essentially from the work that I've been doing uh, from the environmental side 
you know, being able to detect low amounts of DNA, RNA uh, within environmental samples is one of the things that we do in our facility, as because I was already part of the COG UK network. Um, I guess that was the kind of obvious choice for that. And actually, we have already been doing some work on this uh, through the facility, through samples from the northwest of England and Wales during the first wave of the pandemic to show that at least that we could get uh, genome sequences from uh, sewage samples that were taken around that time. Okay, and, and you mentioned then um, just sort of obtaining those uh, levels of RNA and DNA from um, different samples. What, what are some of the techniques that you're using to, um, to de detect those um, sort of nucleic acids? Yeah, so the methods that we're using at the moment are essentially PCR applications. So we have a whole bunch of primers which amplify up short sections of the viral genome. Those then uh, uh, get pulled together and those go through some of these very rapid uh, DNA sequencing machines that we, that we have now. And those get pieced together to produce a, produce a viral genome. And when you're extracting the the samples, what kind of levels are you would you typically see in some wastewater and from different locations around around the UK? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's very low levels. I mean, this is really kind of at the limit of what we're able to do, either to be able to detect samples and to be able to uh, derive a genome sequence for them. So. For anyone that knows CT values, they're sort of at the uh, CT values into the 30s, which is at the point at which is really sort of touch and go whether they can be uh, detected within the kind of clinical test or not. And, and so, sorry, a, a, a CT value of 30 means that there's 30 cycles of PCR um, before you can detect it. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So it is um, in the lingo, yeah, it's very low levels of uh, viral copies there that are yeah. present. And so um, with these with these screening techniques, how what's the kind of day to day of your work with that working group? Is it going to specific locations and testing wastewater in different places or um, are you sort of is there a more targeted approach for um, different regions? Uh, so the moment we're working uh, closely with DEFRA and the Joint Biosecurity Centre. So they're actually doing the large part of the sampling work for that. Um, but our role is so one of the. One of the main things that we're doing at the moment is developing the techniques. We want uh, them to be more sensitive at the moment. And then as you said, uh, the amount of virus there present within wastewater is very small. So being able to reliably uh, amplify up and uh, genome sequence from that is important. And we, we want to push the techniques a little bit more um, developing other alternative approaches as well uh, to do with using little um, nucleotide baits to grab the grab the virus from the sample. That's an alternative approach that we're looking at. Um, there's also uh, uh, a statistical uh, technique development needing to be done as well. Um, what you get is uh, a whole mix of different virus genomes there present within a wastewater sample. Whereas if you think about a clinical sample taken from a nose swab, that's just a single virus there. So we have to develop statistical ways in order to 
infer what uh, variants are circulating within that population that we're, that we're sampling. So that equally is, is part of that. And so you mentioned earlier that you were attempting to improve the sensitivity of your techniques. Could you tell us how you're trying to do this? Um, and do you have any tips for our listeners who may be using the same techniques? Well, one of the things we're trying to do is to amplify shorter fragments. The RNA that you find within wastewater samples, unsurprisingly, is quite degraded. It's not how you would normally choose to store RNA samples. So if we're able to get shorter fragments amplified up, we may have more success with that because there are so few copies there. Um, negative controls are really important, keeping the lab clean using UV hoods to clear out any contaminants and so on. You know, really uh, rigorous methods there to control for and to test for contamination are, is important. Um, and have there been any updates um, to the technologies that you're using, um, maybe to the, the PCR machinery or perhaps the, the RNA extraction um, that has assisted you throughout the pandemic that's made your work any, any easier or sort of led to any kind of advances in how fast or um, effectively you can do things? Yes, I mean, the main um, technique really is in the sequencing. So it's, uh, we wouldn't have been able to do this a couple of years ago, I don't think. Uh, the nanopore sequencing technology uh, has kind of really come into its own uh, in this regard. Uh, because it's so quick, uh, you can load up the sequencer and it gives you sequence back in real time. And you just wait until you've got enough sequence and switch the machine off and then you go and analyze that rather than having to wait. Typically uh, by other methods, it might be about three days of sequence that you need. And the Oxford Nanopore, you can probably get uh, as much data as you need off within 24 hours or 12 hours, uh, something like that. Um, and when it comes to detecting, so obviously recently a key thing has been um, the emergence of new variants, so the B117. Um, when it comes to detecting variants, new variants, is that something you think you'd be able to do um, through the wastewater um, approach, or do you think that's more likely to come from clinical um, observations? Uh, and I think the two uh, come together um, because, well, as an example, so just before Christmas, there was um, increasingly we were starting to see this. Um, Kent variant, the B117, uh, starting to appear particularly in the southeast in clinical samples. And we were asked to monitor the uh, wastewater samples uh, from four London uh, treatment plants. And over time, we could see uh, that B117 variant uh, appearing in the wastewater. And by the end of the uh, period that we were asked to look at, uh, it was essentially the, the dominant strain there, but it's very much into uh, what we see within the clinical samples. And would you say that the um, studying things through through the wastewater provides any kind of additional advantage compared to those clinical samples? Does it give you a better idea maybe of the sort of concentrations of that new variant in the, in the population at all, or is it kind of hard to um, assess uh, quantitatively? Um, the kind of quantitative um, measures are something that we're um, working on and trying to improve on. I think actually the kind of insight that it can give you is in areas of the city, for example, where you get quite often the uptake of people taking tests. You know, if you're in a zero hours contract, uh, there's not necessarily much incentive 
for individuals to go and get tested. So actually, it's quite hard to see uh, what's going on in those areas. Uh, but everyone's going to take a poo, right? So you know you can sample uh, the the variants uh, from that from that sewage system there. So that gives you an insight that you're not necessarily able to get from the individuals themselves. Um, and, and in conducting this work, um, sort of obviously going to these treatment plants, getting these samples, trying to detect these very low um, level of viral load copies. Are, are there any sort of methods or skills that you've learned on your time in this working group that you think you'll take back to your um, environmental genomic studies? Well, one of the, well, many of the problems uh, that uh, we had before the pandemic are still going to be there. One of them is antimicrobial resistance. So actually, all of the techniques that we're looking at now are things that I think help accelerate our fight against AMR. Um, you know, if you're using the sewage system as a way to monitor a city, work out what antimicrobial resistant bugs are around, that I think can be fed back into the health system to help um, treatment of individuals. You know, someone walks into a clinic you don't know what antibiotic you need to give them, uh, but you need to give them some antibiotic straight away. If we're able to say, you know, what's circulating around the city at the moment, um, that and then use that information to prescribe at any given time. I think that's something that uh, I really want to take away from this uh, as we have COVID in the uh, rear view mirror again. Okay, so I, th I think what we want to know now is, is a little bit more about the PCR and sequencing techniques involved in the monitoring of COVID-19. But first, a word from our sponsors, TCAN. TCAN provides innovative and robust next-generation sequence library prep and qPCR solutions for a broad range of sample types, including RNA and DNA from nasal swabs, FFPE samples, and other challenging samples. Their next-generation sequencing products are used around the world for different scientific applications, by researchers in applied markets and are optimized on Tekin's automation platforms. Tekin's high quality Ravello RNA sequencing library preparation kits and Crescendo cDNA synthesis for qPCR kits offer exceptional sensitivity and deliver consistent qualitative and quantitative data. So you can have increased confidence in your results. To find out more, visit www.tcangenomics.com. Um, Josh, you're the lead for the COG UK sequencing working group. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to be in that position? I became involved via my association with Birmingham, which is one of the um, one of one of the academic sequencing centres in in COG UK. And the way that the consortium is structured is that there are working groups which deal with a particular element of the um, process, which is obviously quite complicated, starting from sample collection all the way through to phylogenetic inference and, and, and any other analysis which take place, sector analysis which take place on the data. So there's a lot of parts to the to the process um, of which the sequencing is only a small part of it. But I was nominated to chair the sequencing working group because a large number of the, sequ of the um, sequencing centres were using uh, my coronavirus sequencing protocol. So it was, it was deemed appropriate that I would be a person to, to chair that group. So you've mentioned there that you um, you wrote your own protocol for, for sequencing SARS-CoV-2 that's, that's very widely used. C could you tell us a bit about um, that protocol and, and, and why you designed it? Yeah, so the protocol is usually called the Arctic Protocol. 
because it was um, published through my uh, collaboration involvement in the Arctic Network, which is a Wellcome Trust collaborative award with, to develop um, techniques for um, surveillance sequencing methods in the field. Um, so it's a, it's an it's an amplicon sequencing based approach, which means that you amplify the viral genome in short overlapping amplicons in a multiplex PCR reaction, and then you sequence you barcode and sequence those those amplicons. And we have a I wrote a piece of software called Primal Scheme, which actually um, you can upload the genome to, and it will give you uh, design the primers to do multiplex PCR. So when they um, back in January 2020, when the first Genome came available, was sequenced by Fudan University in China and released online. Uh, I downloaded that sequence, um, created a new set of primers for multiplex PCR, and then updated um, a protocol and uploaded it to protocols.io, which is a protocol sharing and uh, platform and community for um, distributing protocols amongst um, researchers. And you can you can fork protocols, update them, um, comment, ask questions. Um, so the uh, protocol's now been um, been used to generate uh, over 100,000 SARS-CoV-2 genomes, um, and has also been um, has also been adopted by many commercial companies. Fantastic. Um, uh, why do you think that protocol's been so widely um, taken up? Why is what makes it so attractive to use? I think it was. I think it, there's an element of first mover advantage. Uh, first mover advantage because it was available so early, and different people had already generated validation data showing that it worked well, this primer, this primer set worked well. So there was, I think there was an element of well, why, why would you reinvent the wheel for, for, this, for some of these people? We've, we've got experience making you know, these primers for doing multiplex PCR viruses. Um, I had confidence that it would work you know, out of the box. The, the software designs primers which, which work um, and don't require very much manual intervention on the lab side. The other thing I think that's important is that Amplicon sequencing is, is, a, is a targeted approach, obviously, because you're using primers to, um, to, to amplify um, specifically the viral genome, which means that you can tolerate samples which contain a large um, an amount of host background material. Um, it also uses quite short Amplicons, which means you can tolerate um, old or degraded samples. Um, and it's just that using that robust, sensitive PCR method, which allows you to uh, enrich and amplify viral material, um, you know, in, in a quite a simple way, that I think makes it attractive. Okay. Um, and how are you using um, that workflow and, and then also, um, oh, sorry, that protocol um, and, and other techniques in the sort of day-to-day -day of your working group? Are you, um, are you using these kind of techniques to... Um, in combination with, say, the, the waste working group, we obviously heard from um, Deep Patterson earlier. Um, or are you sort of um, using these more in terms of a sort of diagnostic um, aspect? So it's it's not diagnostic. We we take all of the positive samples which come from previous diagnostic tests and and and, and attempt sequencing on those. But across Cog UK, it's it's widely used. We don't try to push any particular protocol um, on anyone. There's or, or platform. So the people generate uh, Illumina genomes, nanopore genomes, people use Amplicon sequencing, um, bait capture sequencing, um, whichever, you know, whichever they, they want to do. Um, but a large number of people do do 
um, amplicon sequencing on nanopore within 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 CogUK, and that forms the the sort of basis of the rapid turnaround approach, where we tried to do very very rapid uh, turnaround in in 24 hours or so. Um, but the wastewater is an interesting one because wastewater. I talked about host background earlier, but wastewater is a, 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 a significantly more diverse uh, background even than, than than the human genome. So targeted methods um, are ideal for that for that um, for that application. In addition. Um, because of the sample type wastewater, you'd, you'd obviously see a lot of um, RNA degradation. So having an amplicon scheme which could target very short um, amplicons, you know, from the from the um, from the RNA fragments that you know exist in the, in wastewater um, is very important. So actually working with um, with the wastewater group to to generate a, a shorter amplicon scheme. Typically, we use 400 base pairs, but we're looking at um, 300 or, or 200 base pair amplicon schemes to try to improve the sensitivity um, or performance of the assay with highly degraded material like, like uh, wastewater. Okay, and you, you mentioned there that some of the main focuses um, of your testing is, is testing sort of samples that have already tested positive. Um, so what's the, what's the main focus of your working group? What, what are you trying to establish with that testing? So the, the working group itself is um, is 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 a is a designed to focus on the seat on the issues um, and um, sharing experience relating to the se to, to sequencing techniques. So the specific the specific part of the of the pipeline which involves um, the 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 extraction the extraction procedures for, for going from inactivated lysates to RNA, um, the the library preparation methods which could be the amplicon sequencing. For nanopore alumina or the bait capture protocol, and then the sequencing itself, which could be nanopore or alumina. So it focuses on um, bringing the people that that have um, hands-on experience in the lab on a day-to-day -day basis that, that are doing the sequencing every day, brings them together um, once every couple of weeks and discuss issues that they've encountered, um, and and we try to solve them um, as a as a group. So it's quite an it's quite an interesting, um, enjoyable group to be a part of. And um, so obviously there's a, a lot of problem solving and um, things that's going to go into, into your work. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've had throughout this experience? Have you had any particular days which um, were sort of especially challenging? We've really had a, a significant challenges with um, acquiring uh, consumables, especially for pet tips, um, gloves, things like that around the um, around the end of last year, sort of going into Christmas, and those those shortages are still still problematic now. Actually, so it seems like a, a small thing, but maintaining um, a, an adequate supply of sequencing of, of consumables and consumables and reagents to be doing the sequencing has actually been quite challenging. Having this group allows you to speak to others about the problems that you've been seeing, and almost always, other people have seen the same thing that you have, uh, or someone has seen the same thing you've seen, and you, you're able to solve those problems much more quickly. Um, and get back on track. But we've never had a catastrophic breakdown in the sequencing where every single site was down or anything like that, thankfully. And, and so you, you mentioned just then that the, the issues with supply uh, and the, the challenge that um, that often presents. Um, do, do you have any, uh, perhaps any tips or um, any anything that you've learned during this experience for how you could make the absolute most of the, um, the supply that you do have? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and actually, it's one of the things that we have discussed within the sequencing working group, which is how can we get the maximum number of samples out of the available pipette tips that we have? And that's not normally something you would you would you would consider in your in, in a normal research environment. But it, it has happened, and we have had this discussion. And uh, to be honest, there's been lots of different suggestions. Um, that are put forward. But some of the things that we've discussed are using automation um, to minimize tip usage, because if you're, using if you're using an automation platform, you can quite conveniently use tip part positions to be able to, um, use, to, be able to use a single, a single tip for a sample through multiple steps. Uh, and that obviously that reduces, that reduces tip usage um, uh, over doing it manually. And uh, we've we've discussed you know other other ways around around it different protocols which you know might use fewer tips than other protocols um, and all, all things like that so quite unusual situation we even had a we even had a situation where we were we were trying to buy pipettes to use the tips that we had rather than the other way around because it was things were in such short such short supply. That's a it's a strange um, a strange sort of lab solution to have is not enough tips and too many too many pipettes. Um, so during this, I mean, you've just you've just mentioned there a few things that you've um, picked up and developed, but um, have you sort of picked up any techniques um, throughout the course of this, um, uh, well, throughout this working group that you think are going to be particularly useful to you when you go back to your um, initial research um, in the, uh, the, the heady days when um, coronavirus is no more? Yeah, I think there's there's been very rapid pace of development, especially in the Arctic Protocol, which I've talked about. There's been three versions, and each one was better than the last one. We were mainly aiming to improve the the sample capacity. We've scaled up to 96 um, samples per per min-iron flow cell from uh, 24 at the start of the pandemic. Um, so that was um, enabled by Oxford Nanopore producing a native barcoding kit containing 96 samples. But we've also um, focused on it streamlining the, the workflow. And we've actually able to now go from extracted RNA all the way through to barcoded amplicons without any cleanups. So we're able to eliminate all the cleanups between RTP, uh, between R, the reverse transcription, um, multiplex PCR, end repair, and barcode ligation. That's all just one continuous um, process now. So there's been certainly things that have been developed during the course of this this. Um, um, during the course of use, you know, during the course of the pandemic, which will feed back into our into our normal work um, and normal research. In addition to that, we've made quite a lot of improvements to the barcoding performance. Um, this is getting getting fairly detailed now, but we've managed to improve the rate of demultiplexing using this protocol to about seventy five percent, which means more usable data um, uh, that you can you, and and less less cost per sample, basically. And have there been any new technologies um, that have helped you along the way with um, with your work? So one of the things I'm excited about at the moment is a, a new technique called RCPCR, so reverse complement PCR. And uh, the idea, so we've always we've known for a long time that we can do we can generate amplicon pools in a multiplex PCR reaction, but the bit but we'd never had the ability to produce barcoded pools very efficiently. So the idea there would be that you would be able to put the barcode on as well as doing a multiplex PCR reaction in a single in a single step. And that always proved very difficult to do using um, using five prime tailed primers. So there's a new technique which has emerged in the last couple just in the last couple of months, which is um, 
which has actually been developed by um, Mattox and Ward at, at Salisbury NHS Trust. They use the reverse complement of a gene-specific primer um, and a, um, an Illumina barcoded PCR primer to produce a functional uh, multiplex PCR primer at the same time as amplifying the um, as amplifying the target in a single reaction. So this is the thing that I'm very excited about at the moment because in our in our preliminary validation that we've done, we've found it to be very sensitive, as sensitive as as the Arctic PCR, and not suffering from any of the negative consequences of adding on a five prime uh, tail to the to the PCR primer. So that's something which I think um, has definitely come out of this. Um, pandemic and will be very useful and applicable to, to lots of other things after the pandemic. Um, and another aspect of um, PCR that people have had, uh, well, that have not necessarily people have had issues with, but just an inherent aspect of um, RT-PCR testing um, is, is the, the time it takes. Um, it, could this RT-PCR testing be, be perhaps any quicker um, than traditional RT-PCR? Um, I think that if you were going to do an equivalent number of targets, which is the only way that you should that you could you could um, compare the two, they're probably on a similar um, a similar time frame. And actually, you bring up a good point because one of the things that has been very successful in the, in the pandemic is the scaling of SARS-CoV-2 sequencing out to very large numbers of samples in terms of batch size. So this typical would be 96 samples on a MinIron run or 384 samples on a Nexseq 550 mid output um, flow cell. But what we haven't been, what we haven't made very much progress is, is the very rapid, um, fast turnaround single sample approaches. One of the things that we, you know, would be very useful is if you could go from um, a sample to to a sequence in, you know, in one hour, for example, like you can perform an, um, an RT-PCR test. But but having to amplify the whole genome or to target the whole genome, the sample processing and library preparation is just much longer than typical PCR testing. So being able to recover a genome within the same equivalent time as, a, as an RT-PCR test is still out of grasp at the moment. Uh, and if you could ask for, um, for anything um, to assist with the sequencing um, work that's required to, to deal with COVID-19, um, and that could be literally anything so from a, um, an updated technique, uh, sort of a fantasy um, insight into the genome or, um, or sequencing process. Um, what would it be? Um, if I could have anything, I'd really like a, a portable version of a Promethean flow cell. That would be that would be awesome. I'd like to have. So I think the RCPCR technology is going to be um, is going to be very very useful in the future. So I'd like to see. Um, 300 and you know uh, 1536 plex rcpcr um, libraries being produced on liquid handling robots every day for sequencing 5,000 samples a week um, large-scale fast turnaround sequencing so that we can identify um, variants in the you know in the population as soon as they emerge very rapidly and monitor them as they transmit within the community so th there's a few things that I'd, that I'd like. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, no, it's good. That's a, it's a good answer. Um, I, a lot of the time when I answer that question, I just get more funding, um, which, is, which is fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, but yeah no. Uh, finally, so you, you mentioned the new variants there. Um, so obviously we've had the, the B117, um, which initially emerged in Kent, uh, and now there's lots of reports of the... Um, 
South African variant um, in now found in Surrey. Have any of the, the techniques that you've um, been working with um, th throughout throughout your work with the sequencing group um, been implemented in testing for or scanning for for new variants um, and catching those new variants? Uh, and what's your role been in, in detecting those those new variants? So so Cog UK was the first group to detect the the UK the UK variant. So so in in that sense, that was the the greatest achievement of Cog to date. And I, I guess I think it's fair to say that. Before that point, um, a lot of the work that we'd done was quite academic, but that was really where you could just obviously see the the the, the advantage of doing whole genome sequencing over testing. And there was actually quite an interesting, there was actually quite an interesting development. The the UK variant B117 contains a deletion called 6970 del, which causes what they call an S gene dropout in this, the, pillar, the pillar two surveillance, surveillance testing, there happened to be a qPCR probe right on top of that deletion. So the so the so the failure of that of that target um, could be used as a as as a way of, of detecting the variant. And that was very lucky, right? Because you've got a thirty thousand base genome and you've got a twenty base pair primer that happens to fall right on top of the deletion that, that gives you an insight as to whether or not you've got the variant or not. But if it wasn't for that that fluke, then you need uh, whole genome sequencing to be able to, to detect new variants, but also to monitor the variants that you that you know about. So I think um, going forward now, people are really seeing the benefit of whole genome sequencing. And I think we're really now looking at a future where we have to sequence all samples. And actually, some countries are very good at this. There's some countries with admittedly lower, lower, much lower overall numbers, like Australia and Denmark, that are successfully sequencing all of their positive cases. We would be doing very well if we could if we could be sequencing, you know, tens of thousands of positives a day. Um, but I think that as the numbers come down, we will be able to meet that demand, and we will be sequencing every sample soon. Brilliant. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast, Josh. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to a time when cases are low enough for us to sequence every sample. Are you? Let me know your thoughts on today's podcast at CyTristan on Twitter, where you can also get in touch if you have any suggestions for topics you think we should cover in future episodes. If you've been captivated by the topics discussed in this episode, or are working in biosurveillance yourself, you may be interested in TCAN's range of high sensitivity tools to get more insights from your viral samples, even those of poor quality or containing low viral copies. Find out more about their Ravello RNA sequencing library preparation and Crescendo cDNA synthesis or qPCR kits at www.tcangenomics.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like to find more, you can find Talking Techniques on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts or look for the podcast section on our website at www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.